I'm Rachel. I'm Lindsay. I'm Kay. I'm Kat. I'm Justin. And, and this, this is Comicsverse. So it's always a treat to talk about something outside of the box for us, right? And today we're going to be talking about My Friend Dahmer, which is written by Durf Backdurf. That's like his pseudonym. So I think Backdurf is his actual Surname, last yes. name. And then his friends just call him Durf. So he's known mononymously as Durf, but more formally as Durf Backdurf. I don't want to do this podcast anymore. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you, Durf. And the reason why I love you is because you wrote and did art for My Friend Dahmer, an amazing graphic novel. And we're going to be talking about that today. And it's interesting because we don't get a lot of time to talk about graphic novels like this. And we always really want to. And it was about time to celebrate what we call it Comics vs. Smindy's comic. So before I introduce everybody, let me remind everybody listening that you can find us on comicsverse.com for more podcasts, interviews, reviews, articles, video, etc. And uh, I'm really excited because I'm joined on a podcast today with four ladies, and it never feels like that's been the issue before, so it's kind of cool. So really, it's five ladies discussing my friend Dahmer, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, so Lindsay, you're the one who chose this because it was about time you got to choose a podcast. What made you choose my friend Dahmer? And also welcome. Thank you. This is probably my favorite graphic novel. I'm a really big true crime fan. And uh, I just feel like this is something that hits on a bunch of different levels. And it's when I picked it up, it was just not what I expected it to be. And I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Question. What did you expect it to be? Because I wonder if I expected it to be the same thing. I expected it to be more like goofy in a sense, just because of the art style and like the cover artwork. And I expected it to be more like outright gruesome, if that makes sense. I get it. I I honestly, when I first saw the title, I was like, this has to be a joke, right? Like they're not really, this isn't really a story about Jeffrey Dahmer, but it really is. Kay, what did you think of it? I knew it it kind of screamed Kay to me at the same time while screaming Lindsay, like the art specifically. It reminded me of your art a lot. Oh, thank you. I liked it. I don't know if I had any expectations going into it. Something that we might talk about later is how it kind of reminded me of the angstiness that came with uh, Charles Burns' Black Hole. And even though their styles are very different, like that kind of same like black and white and ink and kind of like free form is reminded me a lot of that. And it was really interesting. And Thankfully, I went into it without expectations, so I kind of was blown away when I read it. Kat, it's really interesting to see you on a podcast that's not about X-Men or Marvel Comics. Yeah, um, I agree. That's why I um, was really looking forward to do this one. I was really excited to delve into something beyond Marvel. I had heard of my friend Dahmer before, but I hadn't read it, so I was really looking forward to that experience. And I really appreciated how it was less about the Dahmer we know and more about the Dahmer we hadn't heard about before. It was really, really fascinating. There's just really so much to unpack here. And it's interesting because Kay and I got into a discussion before recording the podcast. And there's just so much to discuss here. And I hopefully we'll get into some of what that is. I think that my friend Dahmer, and you'll see hopefully from this podcast, is a great springboard for a lot of different things that are way outside the scope of this comic book because it touches upon so much about the comics medium and so much about subjects of art and so much about choosing the right medium and hopefully we'll talk about some of that but before that oh rachel i haven't even introduced you yet which is horrible you know what rachel it's just that you feel you're like the all mother it's like you're always here we just i just need to invoke you 
thank you. It is a, it's, it's okay. I'll just write a live journal article later and cry about it to Lincoln Park. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> to be fair, I just called you the female version of gods. That's a good thing, right? No, it, very much. As long as I don't have the junk. Like, goddess, right? Goddess, yeah. Hell yeah. Thank you. Okay. you know, I'm, I'm good I'm, now. I'm, I'm good. running into this Christ- Judeo-Christian paradigm bullshit. You know that. Thank goodness. Yeah, right? Blessed be. Um, Blessed be. <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so what did you think about this? Because this is kind of up your up your alley as well. In a sense that I'm a weenie that reads pretty much only Archie. <laughs> well, in the sense that you run the section along with okay, Lindsay. Okay, there that we go. I'm sorry. Comment. I'm connecting the dots now. Um, actually, in a weird way, I found this book to be um, my friend Dahmer just as riveting as Archie. Like, I read through this, and then I reread it over and over again, much like I do with Archie comics. And it wasn't definitely because it was a lighthearted story. But at the same time, there was something very compulsive in the flow about it and the energy was something I very much appreciated. Is Dahmer in this comic more Archie or more Jughead? Oh, he's a Veronica. Oh, is he? Are you kidding me? Okay. Of course. That's so interesting. I had no idea. At the end, I'm going to ask you the same question. We'll see if uh, you and and everyone can write in and tell us if they have the same opinion. (laughs) Um, But yeah, please don't. And... um, Yeah, don't yell at me for asking that question. But Lindsay's going to give us a really awesome summary of My Friend Dahmer. So thank you so much, Lindsay, for doing this. My Friend Dahmer is a memoir written and illustrated by Durf Backdurf, known anonymously as Durf, which follows the creator's experience as a high school friend of infamous serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. What began as a short comic and a self-published anthology was eventually expanded into the full graphic novel we're discussing today. This graphic novel is about as close to fact as a memoir can get, backing up its claims through Durf and his friends' firsthand accounts, Dahmer's confession and subsequent interviews, and news reports. For those who are unfamiliar with Jeffrey Dahmer, as unlikely as that probably is, he was convicted of the murders of 15 men and boys in 1992. Although it's not uncommon for serial killers to keep trophies of their victims, Dahmer stands apart due to the sheer amount of evidence that he saved. Police found human remains scattered throughout Dahmer's apartment from a frozen severed head to torsos dissolving in drums of acid. According to his confession, Dahmer dabbled in necrophilia, cannibalism, and even tried to lobotomize several of his victims. But My Friend Dahmer is not about Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer. It's about Durf's weird friend, Jeff. One point that I thought Durf was making throughout the whole thing, and Kat and I talked about this at length and had a pretty interesting debate, I thought, was that the creator is kind of making a case that Dahmer would never have turned into a murderer or if the adults who were aware of the warning signs when he was in high school had acted on them. And do you guys think he has a point by this? Or would Dahmer, like, would he never have become a serial killer if an adult had stepped in? Or would he have ended up the way he ended up anyway? I think that hypotheticals are very dangerous in that way, like, or at least in terms of forming a real opinion about something. But for the sake of discussion, I do think that Durf has a point when he says that the adults, like, where were the adults? I think he even says that in the story. But at the same time, like, you have to remember that, you know, firsthand accounts are also, like, the least reputable, even in court. So we're going off of, like, his memory and, like, he's piecing together, like, what he's heard from other people. So, like, kind of the validity of the whole story, some like, or I say story because to me that's what it is. Like, the validity of the whole thing is questioned anyway. So, obviously, retroactively, he doesn't want to take responsibility because he was, quote-unquote, his friend. But then, yeah, it's, like, a convenient thing to say, like, oh, well, where were the adults? Like, where were the people who were supposed to take care of us? And, like, all this shit. But 
you know, I think that sure that's true, but it's not just the adults. Like, I don't think that there's any way of telling if, especially during the time period too, like whether just having someone care about him would have been enough for him because he clearly was very ill and needed to see someone professionally. And even back then, I don't know if they would have been well-equipped to handle that. So partially, yes, but not primarily. I don't think that's the primary reason why he became a serial killer. I think the core of this question is like a nature versus nurture argument. So I don't know if they could have stopped him from having violent fantasies because I don't know if that necessarily comes from anywhere other than just, I don't even know. I don't know if we can explain that, but he definitely could have been stopped. Like something could have prevented him from becoming a serial killer. Like definitely. But at the same time, we don't have, we don't have accounts of people who like were potentially going to be serial killers and then we're saved because like, obviously we don't know that. So it, again, it is a hypothetical, like what could have happened? And it's also a very hard question to answer in the context of this. I think there are a lot of great points to my friend Dahmer. One of my least favorite, though, was this explanation of the adults having to step in because I don't think that's helpful or constructive or narratively useful. Like compared to Fun Home, where Alison Bechdel sort of gave reasons, but then stepped back as to why her father lived a closeted life or what this meant afterwards to find out. I thought that was one of the strongest and most relevatory parts of Fun Home. And so to see that not come into play in my friend Dahmer, I mean... What's the point of explaining this in 2017 or when this was written in 2012 or 2002? Like, what's the point of necessarily having these thoughts? These people are dead. This tragedy happened. It's a fun thought experiment, but I didn't think it was necessary argument to have in this graphic novel. I think based on the story that Durf Backturf tells in um, My Friend Dahmer, just based on what we garnered from it about how Dahmer dissolved roadkill and acid and how he did that spaz act in school and how he was drinking on school property all the time. To me, it's a little baffling that none of the adults noticed, especially given at the end of the graphic novel, he um, talks about all these interviews that people gave, like guidance counselors and teachers and even his parents who all regarded Dahmer as a normal kid. But based off of Backdurf's account of it, he did not seem like a normal kid at all. Um, for more of like a personal experience with this, um, I have something I like I related to this a little bit because not that I had a friend who was a serial killer, but I had a similar experience with a friend who after we all graduated high school, we found out he did some fucked up stuff. And reading this kind of dug up all of those feelings that I had after I found out, which was, you know, why didn't anybody step in? Why didn't anybody notice? How did we miss all the signs? So I, I think Durf, a back Durf has a lot of um, a really good point with that. I love that this graphic novel was made and I love how problematic it is in terms of the conversations that it can spark. And I hopefully, like I said during the introduction, I hopefully those conversations can be sparked here. But I, Rachel, like I said, I felt very, very similar to you and that NK too. And that how can we really say what would have happened if adults stepped in? And I guess, I don't know. I mean, maybe my high school experience was different, but I thought a lot of people were like this when I went to high school and we're doing even more messed up stuff than this. So I'm not really sure. I, I mean, I guess at what point do you know when to step in and who do you choose to step in for? And how do you know what really is a sign or what is just really teenagers 
being weird. Yeah, there's this one part where um, Durf straight up says, he says, you know, he and his friend had no idea what was going on in his head. So how could they have even stepped in? And there was this one moment that I thought was really poignant when they're at the lake, I think it was, and they're talking about their classmate who died of suicide. And they had that conversation of like, oh, like, how could she have done this? Nobody knew. Nobody even thought she was capable of something like this. And I think that was a really strong parallel to what ultimately happens with Jeffrey Dahmer. I think that it's interesting because I, I don't listen like I don't want to make this about like a preaching thing about mental health or like how stigmatized it still is right now and how I'm sure it was still very much stigmatized back then, too. And we'll get into his mother, too. It really is that I feel like because there are people who are paid professionals or who train to do these things. They are basically brain doctors who are supposed to help you through these things or through these feelings or thoughts that you might be having. And I agree with you, Justin, like, it's very true. Like, I saw that kind of stuff all the time. Or like, I could see some kind of relatability to that where you're just like, yeah, that kid's like a fucking psycho. But you know, you never delve in because you kind of don't want to. And also you're young. And also with adults too, they're humans. And like, they can't I'm sure there were several Dahmers in there, you know, like it's hard to like pick one and like just try to nurture them. It's, you know, it's a hard call to make. That's why it's so upsetting because literally even just talk therapy is someone just sitting there and listening to you just for like a second. And I think that not just people who are ill or people who feel a certain type of way, but like anyone can benefit from that. So he was unusual, but he wasn't that unusual. So it's hard to gauge when to step in because it's like, well, how would you even know? Yeah, like I said, I I think that, well, I just want to say personally that this is a really good graphic novel and um, I'm going to say some negative things about it only because the story itself is so negative. So if the author or if the artist and writer is listening, who is the same person, please don't be offended. I really did enjoy it. But also, I just think it's who is to say, even if an adult did step in, and this goes into what Lindsay was saying, who is to say that even if an adult did step in, that he would not have been a serial killer? And I mean, what, isn't that just his nature anyway? And that stuff had to come from somewhere, like you said. And yeah, I know you wanted to add on to what Kat and Kay were saying. I mean, I kind of wanted to just talk about like the hypocrisy of Durf being like, where are the adults? Because it's this weird, I don't know. It's this weird line of like, when do teenagers have their own agency? And when do you become an adult? And like, it's very much tied to that experience of like, like Durf is in high school and he's only looking out for himself really. So like, he's just like, this kid's weird and I'm going to stay away from him. But it's like, on one level, we want to blame him for that. But on another level, it's like, that's what it's like to be a teenager. Exactly. It's almost as though um, Backdorf wants to put the blame somewhere. But I I do think, I, I mean, I agree with all of you that ultimately I think Dahmer would have gone down that route anyway, given those very strange hobbies he had as a kid and then those really dark urges he had that he had to find an outlet for somewhere. I think in a way, if there was some intervention, maybe it would have helped a little bit. But I mean, really, who's to say? I, I, I like, I don't know. It's 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 not something anybody can really determine. I don't think. Just given everything that had happened to him, I think maybe it was inevitable. Yeah, and before you go, Rachel, that's one of the things that I find problematic is that I feel that Durf is saying definitely if adults had stepped in, they wouldn't. And I and I think that you can 
say sort of like Alison Bechdel did, um, you know, this is my opinion, but still, this is just what happened. You, it is what it is for you. But I, I felt like he was outright saying that and that anything else was wrong. And also, where are the parents with anything? I mean, you can say that with anything. Of course, it would have helped. I think part of the desire um, and compulsion to answer this question is because in our society, whenever someone commits an atrocity like this, we want to find the equation or we want to play like serial killer bingo. Like, where are the pieces? Where did this come from? And it helps contribute to like this deification or even sometimes fetishization of serial killers that we see in our culture and society. So I think this is a very like for our society, this is a very interesting question. It's a very natural question to come to. But how does this prevent the next Jeffrey Dahmer? And isn't it just human nature not to do anything about something until it happens first? Right. Yeah. And I think maybe just even on a smaller scale, just from a narrative standpoint, it's a lot more convenient and clean storytelling to just have a reason you know and like think like oh well this is convenient or this is like ties this up really nicely because there's like a clear quote-unquote villain or like a opposing force and you know clearly you know or maybe not clearly but the gauge that I got out of it was that he felt he harbored a lot of weird feelings about how he treated him or how Durf treated him and looking at it retroactively being like, no, but we were just kids. Like, we didn't know. And it seems like there was a lot. Not, I, wanna, I don't want to say regret or anything like that because there really is nothing you can do at that point. But I don't want to say that it would have been inevitable for Dahmer to have become a serial killer. But at the same time, like, Durf saying it was the adults, like, where were they, is almost like not only a storytelling thing, but also a defensive, like, you know, like it's all retroactive too. So it's hard to like emotionally process that and be like, oh yeah, I probably could have done something. Cause it's like, you don't know that. You don't. And it's just convenient to say like, it was them. I never considered the narrative structure point until you brought it up, Kay, but I think that's a very valid point. I mean, how do you tell this story? Like this isn't a work of fiction. He actually was friends with Dahmer and like this isn't, a fictional device like how do you process that emotionally as an adult and then tell that to other people i don't know i don't even think that he was his friend though yeah it's interesting because it's sold i mean look at the title my friend Dom. that's what i'm saying like i feel like a lot of the choices he made for title or like storytelling i hate to put it this way but it's like sexy like it's just very clean very interesting. I want to read it. It worked. It's great. And like a really interesting read. But at a certain point, like when you read into it, it's kind of like, doesn't really sound like you guys were friends at all. Well, that's interesting because in the story, sorry, in the story, I felt like they weren't as close friends. But when reading the notes, he like went to Jeffrey Dahmer's house like 12 times. They did apparently hang out much more than I felt was apparent in the book, which reading the notes after reading the story felt very odd is like, where were those moments? Where was that sense of like continued interaction? And also the the friendship was very superficial, like a very like a typical male high school friendship and i and i also thought it could have been ironic the title too like oh my friend like you know my friend Dahmer, you know like here's my friend the serial killer you know and I, so i thought that was kind of interesting but uh towards the beginning of the story durf as the narrator mentions that Dahmer's father attempted to get him into lifting weights after quote unquote many attempts to get his son interested in something uh so his parents did try and interject do you think they could have or should have 
known what Dahmer was capable of just based on the actions that he took at this point. Just a short note. It's hard. I think we all can relate to when we were teenagers. We were pieces of shit. Like we are. I'm bro- still a piece of shit. Yeah, we're moody, brooding. I don't want to talk to you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard. Like, everyone experiences that. So how do you gauge the difference between just being a teenager or, like, whatever? And I don't think the line is very clear either. I think that Jeffrey Dahmer very, like, he's a, you know, as much as we want to vilify him for obvious reasons. Like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. But, you know, he was still a teenage boy just because he didn't tell anyone that he was into skinning things and you know obviously he wouldn't talk about that but like that kind of shows like a certain level of self-awareness of like no this is up i cannot tell anyone and like there's so much sense of shame when you're a teenager too so like yeah i think that the i think the parents probably did the best that they could at the time so i again i don't think the adult blaming it on the adults is fair either but it does call into question like teenagers like they're all like that they're all pieces of shit. Like, I'm sorry. I just, before Lindsay and Rachel go, I have to say, and Kat, and Kat, this question actually has to do with you and Kay, because I think both of you have read this, but now, when Kay, you were talking about that, I thought of the Apocalypse Solution in Uncanny X-Force when Apocalypse was a kid. And it was like, so, and you had to save him, right? But he was like a little boy. Yeah, and you're just like, you have, it's like the the trolley situation or yes. like the trolley thing oh, where, listen to our podcast ethics and comics for that one yes because that is that was a f- four hours of trolley problems go for it i mean i definitely agree with what Kay said i think there's definitely signs that like Dahmer was troubled but they were not exceptional they weren't like exceptionally odd signs because a lot of i don't know a lot of teenagers go through weird phases and do weird things but like getting back to the question i don't think anyone could have or should have known what Dahmer was capable of. And I think that's what makes this case so famous. Like the things he did were so exceptionally heinous and disgusting. Like no one should think that another human being is capable of doing what he did. We're not calling this person Jeff or Jeffrey. We're saying Jeffrey Dahmer. We're saying the full name. And part of that, I think, is because he sowed the other. You don't imagine this. This isn't a human being. This is a name. This is something else. And our child is us. I don't know how as a parent that is so much us. How can you ever imagine them as that person or the other that way? Those are just two things that don't naturally connect, I think, for anyone. Personally, I mean, I, I feel guilty humanizing him too much, and we'll talk about this later, because what about his victims? You know, and, and I don't know if, I mean, God forbid, I would hope that one of the parents of one of those men who died were listening to this. I, you know, I don't want them, I mean, I feel like you've lost the right to be humanized when you did some of these things, which I don't even want to get into because they weren't even in the context of this uh, story. But it is interesting to think about, Rachel, and I think that I I hope that not everyone feels the same way I do about it. So so many things to bounce off of from that. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Calling him Jeffrey Dahmer is more of like a title. The way that Durf refers to him as Jeff for the purposes of the story is very humanizing, uh, which we're going to touch on later. But I, I think it's interesting that in the beginning, like before the story even begins, um, Durf Factor says, you know, to set the record straight, I am not excusing or sympathizing with him in any way. Like you can pity him, but you can't sympathize with him. But to to speak towards his father wanting him to lift weights, I didn't really interpret that as his parents interjecting or trying to intervene in any way. It seemed like a really superficial thing to me. 
the story focuses a lot on how intense their arguments were and what a strong effect it had on Jeffrey Dahmer. So the father trying to have him lift weights didn't seem like a very strong attempt to kind of give him a normal childhood, if that makes sense. I wonder if at the time, though, to a dad who was born like in the 50s or 40s or something, well, I guess like like my father, I guess someone younger than my father, someone born in like the late 30s, if to them that would be interjecting at some point. I wonder. My parents think the smallest things are interjection, you know? But I totally see your point, Kat. It is a very superficial interjection regardless. Looking at it with what we know now and looking at it in terms of where psychology is today and where what we know about parenting and stuff, right? How telling of his issues were the scenes where he threw the jar of the raccoon remains on the floor and broke it, and then when he ripped apart that fish, that was awful, I thought, after he uh, killed it. I mean, I guess he killed it by ripping it apart. Again, it's hard to look back retroactively because I don't know how I would have felt about it if I was growing up. Well, let let me rephrase the question. Not telling about if he was a serial killer, telling about who he is as a person. Oh, yes. I mean, that's the thing, like what Lindsay was saying earlier, like, boys and girls alike have weird fascinations and weird hobbies and phases when they're growing up and you know usually you have the wherewithal to figure out what's socially acceptable or what's like socially you have like an internal you know we're social beings like we have an internal need to not be the pariah of anything because we want to be included and it's interesting that he had this impulse that was so strong that he even said, like, even for the rec- like the first story that is in the book, he was just saying, like, I'm just interested in how they work or, like, how they're put together. And that's, like, that's a weirdly innocent thing you can say because that's, like, people could be a scientist for that or something. Like, you can dissect things and you can have a weird fascination with it and it's, you know, you'll still be a bit strange maybe, but, you know, there there are benefits to doing that. And then with, that's what, that's always how I read it, even though it was so brutal and vicious of him. Whenever those stories came up, I always thought of it like he was being so clinical about it. That's what made it weird for me because he was very not, it wasn't a crime of passion. It wasn't like he was angry or at least overtly. And he, every time he was just like, I just wanted to know. And it's kind of like, it's scary, but I kind of get that. The raccoon thing, although I thought it was really weird, bothered me a lot less than the fish thing. Because the raccoon thing, it seemed that he was angry that he wasn't being accepted by his peers at that moment. And the fish thing was just like something that he enjoyed doing. And it was like, wow, no one was watching. But he just, I don't even know what you, what the word is for what he did to that fish. Yeah, the raccoon thing, the raccoon thing was, it was attention seeking. The fish thing was more like impulsive. Yeah, it was more need, as we say, like, like he had a need to do that to that fish, I think. Impulse is a really great word to use with that. And I, I agree with you. The um the fish thing bothered me a whole lot more than the raccoon thing. I think just because of how violent it was. It wasn't that he just kind of chopped it up. He like massacred it. And it was scary just the way that uh, it was depicted in that scene and how horrified his friend was seeing that. I think what's even more telling is later on when he lures the dog out and then he decides against killing it. But then you see that he had done it several times before with like all the other animal remains i think that it's um i'm referencing something that was in the end notes of the of the graphic novel where where he's like being interviewed by the press and everything or for his confessions and everything 
a theme of his for him was having complete control over another thing. So that's when you like go over the edge, basically, isn't it? Because like it's one thing to be clinical and interested, but then a whole other thing to be like, no, I'm exerting my dominance over this thing that can't fight back. And that's a very scary impulse to have. And I think that everyone has it to a certain degree. But again, like you find ways of managing it. And I feel like even even him eviscerating that fish, like I feel like I know lots of primarily young boys who would do crazy shit like that. And you're kind of just like, that's really gross and upsetting. But I mean, look at David Lynch. He's a weird dude, but he's a director and he's an artist. And he made some weird stuff. Like he would like make things that looked like like out of like rat remains and stuff like before he made a racer head and he would be so excited to show his dad and his dad was like horrified but his dad like kind of let him rock so it's like it's when when is it you know it's like again what we were talking about before it's like when when is it like no don't do that like <laughs> no it's such a good point i remember being in london and going to the sachi museum and there were two sculptures and one was made completely of dead rats and one was made completely of dead mice and they were taller than the ceiling goes up and people were like touching it and stuff uh, i guess because the artist made it look i mean they were they were like the actual animal you could see the mouth and the tail and everything and they were like glued on to each other it was actually quite gross and the guy was like i, I was just looking at it and the guy was like can you believe people keep touching this thing it's disgusting um but yeah anyway Feel free to judge me for this because I probably need to be judged for this. My judges are on. (laughs) I wasn't really that creeped out by either the fish or the raccoon scene because I came in expecting Jeffrey Dahmer. So this was the reminder that, oh, yeah, this isn't Jeff. This is freaking Jeffrey Dahmer. Those moments when he was being like when he was going to the vice president's office, that was like, this is Jeffrey Dahmer. That shocked me more. Or where like in the postscript, that deleted scene with the figs character who Durf initially thought was the serial killer, him running over that live dog freaked me out a bit more because I was like, whoa, we can't have two Jeffrey Dahmers and my friend Dahmer. OK, it's like, whoa. Like that somehow got me more. And I think it has a lot to do with like my own desensitization towards like I expected this from Jeffrey Dahmer, which is horrible to say. And I don't feel proud saying this. Well, I don't know if it's desensitization for you, because if you saw that in an Archie comic, you'd be like, oh, my God. But it was that you expected Dahmer to do much worse. Right. If Veronica was doing that, you'd be mortified, horrified. Not well, mortified. That was an issue in 1971. No, I'm no, I was like, really? Holy <laughs> shit, Veronica. <laughs> Rachel raises a really good point when you bring up the other character. And I I think that makes a really good point towards the question of how could you have known that Jeffrey Dahmer would have turned out this way? Because here was another guy who was equally, if not more strange, doing like also horrible shit. Um, Kay also made a really good point that, you know, teenage boys are kind of weird. Like I had friends when I was like in elementary, middle school who used to like catch lizards and torture them. And now they're like married and have children. So, uh, yeah, I mean, who you can't, you can never know. Just I was that lizard. <laughs> <laughs> no. Relatable. As someone who went to an all girls Catholic school, I am, I feel like I should be taking notes right now. You're all the lizards. <laughs> we were the lizards from the, the nuns were dissecting us. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like a lot of this was just like cherry picking examples. And I couldn't help but thinking like, if this if someone was writing a book about me and how like they knew I was going to become like XYZ, like what are the things they could have said about me? Like I did weird shit too. Like I did things that like looking back, I'm like, wow, I'm glad I worked that out. So it's like 
I don't know, like these two examples specifically, like, okay, who cares? I don't know what it means. Well, and if he had grown up to be Steve Jobs, right, he would, these would be ignored. And then the vice president thing would be huge. And I did think the vice president thing was interesting. It speaks to his sociopathy, the fact that he had absolutely no esteem for that. And, and, and it made him look good to ask. But I think he did it for the social acceptance part. And it was just easy for him. I think that just to add to like the vice president incident where he basically talked his way into the vice president's office, right? I think that it's true that it is sociopathy and the, or like elements of that because you don't hold it in high esteem, as you said. But I also think that, I don't know, again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I didn't go to any school for psych. But from my limited understanding, I feel like... I, I guess it's not fair to say from looking from this story because that's like a reading of a reading of a reading, basically. So there's no way of knowing. But I feel like he had at least at one point remorse or like, I don't know about remorse. Maybe not. Maybe not remorse, but like some code of conduct for himself. Like Dexter? I guess. Like that sounds kind of weird to put it that way because he did laugh like really like, he, there were cruel things about him as well. But, you know, there are cruel things about everyone. And it was really interesting to me, like, what you were saying, Rachel, about the how he was with Figs, and he was really upset by the dog thing. He was like, don't do that. And it's like, what? You're a fucking hypocrite. You're doing shit. Like, You're Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, where did he draw the line? But, like, that's so interesting to me because it's, like, it's, like, very weird I don't know if there's even a psychological explanation. I'm sure there is. I would love to know. But it's a waste because, you know, he was clearly a charming dude. He wasn't an unattractive person. If he was, you know, like, it's just bizarre. If he shaved and stopped doing those fake seizures. Yeah. Call me. Oh, my God. I can actually kind of answer that query because I know way too much about serial killers because I'm one of those people. Jeffrey Dahmer was a product killer, not a process killer. So he didn't enjoy killing people. He just wanted the dead bodies. So there was definitely remorse there, but it obviously was overpowered by whatever other urge and thoughts I he see. had going on. That That's makes so a lot creepy. of sense. That just actually like literally sent a chill down my spine. That, but that kind of goes into what we were talking about, about how awesome he's way. like very, yeah. Like, <laughs> like how clinical he is. It's almost like he's a collector more than he's like a, which is weird, you know, because it's almost weirder than having taking pleasure killing someone or whatever. But he was just like, no, I just wanted all my lovers to be with me. And I'm like, you f***ing weirdo. But at the same time, like, you're just like, you're so lonely. Like, I don't know how to explain that. That's so terrifying. It's her like, it's horrific because it's not clean cut where you can just be like, fuck this person for all the things that he's done. Obviously, still, you're going to say that and you're going to feel that. But there's also like a tiny part of you that's like, I'm lonely, too. Like, I don't know. It's weird. Like, it gets it gets really weird with him, I feel like. But that's why this is such a good book. But anyway, yes, Kat. Yeah, there were um, some of those deleted scenes at the end of the graphic novel where um, he describes those moments where Jeffrey Dahmer tried to steal dead bodies from the graves and he would kind of fantasize about those dead classmates of theirs. So yeah, he, he did just want the bodies. He didn't want to, he didn't want to do the act of murdering them. He just wanted the, the products. Uh, Creepy. I think um, what this book did especially well for me was that it made me like 
humanized. Like I understood that compulsion of wanting to be accepted and loved. So even though I don't think we can or should try to explain Jeffrey Dahmer on emotion, like on some level, it's like, okay, like I can see where this is coming from. Like I can see this character as a character. You made Jeffrey Dahmer a three dimensional character, which is quite astounding. You can understand him without agreeing with what he did. Exactly. Yeah, and this is a graphic novel. It's a piece of art, and and so we're going to think of it differently. And you know, I, I bet you that everybody here who's born—I mean, everyone here except me—was born uh, before this event took place. And I remember when it happened. I actually don't remember when it happened that much. I remember like a couple of years. Out, it was still a big deal for a while. I want to say like OJ, but you guys don't remember that either. The point is, this is a graphic novel. But also, like, let's quickly talk about his drinking because I do think, like, was he interested in oblivion? Yes. Like, it was very. He couldn't handle his life. So he did have some emotions. We can deduce from this From the story, exactly. Like, I think that that's another reason why I can't say if he. He has a personality disorder or something. I'm, again, I'm talking out of my ass. I'm not a psychiatrist. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't normal. He wasn't what we call well-adjusted. Right. No, he, exactly. He wasn't well-adjusted, clearly. But I can't say if he didn't have feelings. Like, if anything, he had a surplus of them and, like, didn't know what to do with any of them. And it went into a really dark place. And, you know, hitting big sticks on trees wasn't good enough. And that's really upsetting and sad. But, you know... The drinking was clearly to, like, drown all that shit down. Like, that's the reason why most people in America drink. Just to forget the f***ing up bullshit that you don't want to acknowledge in yourself. (laughs) Sorry, Kat just took a swig of beer. (laughs) Or it's for just light enjoyment and for people who drink responsibly. But that is not what he was doing, clearly. So I think that that's actually a really good way of putting it, Justin, is that he was interested in oblivion. Just anything but what was in him. I just want to say I stole that from Courtney Love when she was talking about Kurt Cobain. It wasn't my thing. Yeah. Oh, I know it's sad, right? But it's just interesting. It's like, it's like could Jeffrey Dahmer, it's like if maybe, I mean, I see why. It's such wishful thinking, but I kind of see why the creator was like, you know, uh, uh, I wish an adult could step in because, you know what, this could have been a great biologist. And I'm not kidding. But I, I just don't think it's likely from even the story in terms of art. I just don't think it's likely uh, from there. Speaking up of what you just said, there are so- several moments in the story where Backdorf says, you know, he'll highlight some moments of Jeffrey Dahmer's life and say, you know, what a waste. Like, you know, he could have turned out so differently. But yeah, and he even says, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer drank just to be numb and he was constantly drinking. He was constantly wasted or just numb from it. And then he talks about, you know, everybody had that one moment where they realized that this guy was not okay. And for Bacter, if it was when he just like pounded back that whole six pack. I mean, I've seen that hundreds of times. I'm not even I mean, yeah, same. Like in that setting too, where it's like you're in the backseat like of a car on the, set, yeah, on the way to some place and you're just like, yeah. oh, we're not going to address that? Cool. Yeah, Durf, there wasn't even any Coke there. So yeah, chill. Even with all things considered against other kids of his age, Durf was pretty tame. Like him and his friends were pretty tame. So that was f-ing scary. His mother left his dad in the story and she takes his younger brother with him. And I'm sure, well, actually, I mean, do you guys think that that had a negative effect on him? Or was he just completely emotionally disconnected from everything? And I just think of how cruel that is to the mother to do such a thing. 
Yeah, I think his mom leaving was the final straw for him because despite the fact that his parents fighting had such a negative effect on him, at least he had somebody there. And his mom leaving coincided with school ending with his friends no longer talking to him. The last person he had was his mom. And after she was gone, that was it. I found it kind of interesting, that scene, because one, it's somewhat imagined because in that scene, he um, Jeffrey Dahmer says, but he tries to interject and the mother's like, no, I have to do this. You have to let me have this. Don't tell your father. But he puts up some feeble form of resistance that we don't know if that really did happen or not. But also, secondly, I just remember, like, I never had a senior year of high school, but when I did graduate as a junior, like, if my mom offered to just leave me the house for a summer, that would have been the awesomest thing ever. But I just imagine how many teenagers would have dreamed for that scenario, to just live in an empty house after high school. For some teenagers, that would have been such a great thing, even if they didn't have friends, to just be there by themselves, to be an adult in that sense. But he never yeah, wanted no, that, yeah. No, but... He, Again, going back to that, he never wanted that, and that was just the final. But nail didn't the he want it so he could kill people? No, he. I don't. We will again. We can't speculate. Well, we can speculate that for sure, but we don't know that. And again, or, I or think so that, he could look at the dead bodies. Excuse me. Or yeah, exactly. Like that did give him opportunities to do those things more freely. But you know, we don't know if he was excited or if he was sad or whatever. We just know that that was a turning point for him. I don't care who you are, but even if you're a serial killer, even if you don't have feelings, there is no escaping symbolism. Like you, you feel that with yourself. Like you put timestamps on certain things that happen to you. You put milestones because that's how you like rationalize or try to um, internalize whatever experience you have. Like whether it's like, oh yeah, that was the first time I got drunk, or like, oh, this is when shit went down, and like I learned this from it. Like if it's a significant enough situation and especially in his circumstances where his mother was clearly sick and she was just like I'm leaving you (laughs) till your dad gets here God knows when I'm taking your brother but not you it's like why would you ever do that to a kid I don't get it well that's what I'm saying she was ill so like that's a whole other thing but then he still had this very sincere or like from what is said in the, the end notes he still refused to tell his dad where they went. Like he kept his promise to his mom when he definitely didn't have to. Because it's like a weird thing, you know? It's like that must have been a turning point for him in the sense that, look, we don't know how he reacted. We just know that someone's mother left him taking his little brother and was like, okay, bye. You're on your own, basically. So I have a question. Um, why didn't Durf Bachdorf want to forge a closer friendship with Jeffrey Dahmer? And if he had, do you think that would have changed anything? No, I don't think so. And the reason why he didn't form a closer friendship with him is because he didn't give a shit about him. He didn't give a shit about Jeff. He was too weird. I'm sure that they did hang out much more than he lets on in, the, in what he chose to show. But like, I don't know, man. Like, Teenagers are ruthless. And sometimes they're just like, this person amuses me, so he's my accessory now. And even in the graphic novel, he's like, I know it seems cruel, but it really was funny. And it's just like, I'm sure you thought that was funny. Because I think each of us can say when we have been the person making someone feel that way, as well as receiving it from another person. And it's such a hormonal and such a like emotional time for anyone that it's like, I don't 
think it would have changed anything because I don't think Durf cared about Jeff at all. Like, I really don't. Have you ever met someone and you just felt like something was off or off-putting about them? I think quite a few people felt that way about the character of Jeffrey Dahmer in this story. Like, even though it wasn't stated, like, when you meet a certain person, you could just feel like, there's something a bit off with this person. I don't know how close I should get. I think that was the impulse with Durf and quite a number of people in that high school. Like, hey, I can't explain. I don't know what it is, but this person makes me uncomfortable. Even if it's entertaining, even if I like the spectacle, which I think the Jeffrey Dahmer fan club was about the spectacle of seeing this person. It wasn't, it was amusement. It wasn't a sense of camaraderie. So no, I don't think he wanted to be closer to Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, if anything, I think he might've exacerbated it because you read the confessions and he says, I needed full control. And I'm like, in what way were you in any form of control when you were hanging out with these people who were your only friends, evidently, and you claim that you had a normal childhood or whatever. And in all intents and purposes, you kind of did because you weren't doing, I mean, you were doing, eventually you did much more fucked up things. But at the same time, it's like, it looked like everyone was going through their own shit and like doing weird things. And if anything, like, I just thought how they interacted with him was so humiliating. And even there's a, also another story in the back where he gets, I, I'm like, I, there's a proper word for it. It's not caned, but he got caned by one of his teachers. Paddled. He got paddled. And I'm just like, that's like just very basic humi- like humiliation, dominance over another person. Just like think about how humiliated and small his life, the people around him, the people in his family made him feel to have to get pushed to this extreme of like, I need full control. I need something that won't leave or I need something that will stay. And the only way to do that is to have dead things in my house. And you know, like it's just, it's a very sad thing. They're not going to move. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, it's, it's like very Freudian. It's, it's almost like a child. It's like a child's idea of what you would do to get what you wanted because you were humiliated. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of just like, oh, well, if they're dead, they're not going anywhere. No, totally. And then uh, I think a person who studies Freud would argue that his development stopped in his childhood, and that's why he thinks in that childish way. I think, I don't know, even looking at what would have happened if Durf would have actually been Dahmer's friend, looking at what have happened, what would have happened if um, his mother hadn't left and all these, those things, I just feel like it's too little too late. Like the timeline, obviously, for this book is not set in stone, perfect fact. It's it's as close as we can possibly get, I think. But we don't really know what happened when. But I feel like once you're sitting in the bushes outside your house with a baseball bat waiting for a jogger so you can club him. Once you're stealing a fetal pig from your science classroom so you can masturbate to it later, like no friendship is going to save that. No, no parental relationship is going to save that. Like that's something in you that you don't have control over. And that's terrifying to think about, but I think that's the case at that point. Also very apocalypse solution. Uncanny X-Force. I just wanted to point that out, which is actually a really frightening. I think that's a really great point, Lindsay. And it's making me wonder, can someone save themselves? Could Jeffrey Dahmer have taken any agency like, in himself was could there have been a moment you think or? i can't even fathom how, would, how you would deal i would with that. like to believe that because i would you know the same way i would like to believe anyone is able to do that but isn't that his nature because it's like how do you fight against being 
it's like how do you fight against being gay that's your nature isn't this his nature to be a serial right. killer i mean that's actually a really good point i actually had a huge i mean this is a huge point of discussion with mental health as well i have an older person that i work with who's like i can't believe like these privileged kids who have everything laid out for them like i can't believe that they have addiction problems i can't believe that they would hurt themselves i can't believe that they would addiction doesn't discriminate and i'm just like and i'm just like dude it's literally illness it's like a compulsion that you can't control and it's really scary and like some you know that within itself is already scary so like when it's something as intense and violent as what you know jeff had to go through or like not even had to go through but like was experiencing then yeah, it's like you're an ill person. Like we either have to find a way to manage it, which is how everyone deals with everything. Like if it's a permanent thing, you have to find a way to manage it. But it once you hit a certain point, it's like there's no going back. It's so complicated and hard to talk about because I think the core of this is like one mental health to tied into that like human sexuality like pedophilia is still a thing and we don't know how to stop pedophiles and there's no treatment that cures it there's nothing like that so it's kind of the same thing with Dahmer's like once this is what gets you off I don't know you can be reprogrammed and I don't know how you got like that to begin with but I don't know if you can be fixed and I bet you most people who are in the psychology field today being as neuroscience has kind of taken over from all the Freudian kind of stuff that I was am more aware of I mean, it's like Lindsay was saying, it is a nature versus nurture argument. Or there's a qu- in, inherent in the question is a nature versus nurture argument. But I think most scientists would probably argue, and I don't know for a fact, would probably argue that this is nature. So you bring up a good point. It's like in the case of pedophilia, I mean, some people opt to, for chemical castration. and Yeah. No, that's a thing. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. I only know from Law & Order SVU. Just kidding. I have seen it elsewhere, but I do know it from Law & Order SVU. And, like, they have and to treat guy. those people. It's like, it's yeah. it's one of those things. Like, in that case, too, like, there's a lot of shame. Like, people are like, I don't know how to change how I am, and I don't want to be this way. I haven't touched anyone. I just know I have this impulse, and I sicken myself, but I need help. So, you know, like making them a social pariah doesn't help them. It just makes them like sink back into their thing, repress it some more, and then probably act out. Yeah, when we were at Boston Comic Con and Kathy was here, her and I had the most interesting discussion in our hotel room. And it was, she was talking about Dan Savage, who has that column. He's American and married to Canadian or vice versa. And his column is Savage Love. And I'm just, I'm just repeating the conversation because this is a very controversial thing that I'm about to say. And I'm repeating what she told me what Dan Savage said. So this is not journalism of the highest order. But she was pointing out that people were writing into him who were pedophiles and they had never done anything and they were asking for help. And he said, instead of judging these people negatively, what I think they're doing is actually pretty brave because they haven't done anything and there is so much shame and they're asking for help. And where do they go for that kind of help? And he was giving it to them. And at the time, I was judgy of it. But looking back, I mean, I kind of get it now. It, it's like exactly what, you know, what you and Lindsay were saying, too. It's just like human sexuality is so, like, not well understood even to the point that we still have issues in the government about it. But that's true. It, it is like a natural thing, unfortunately, for some people, because the social construct that we build is like, no, you, you can't, you know, you can't f- dead people or you can't 
minors because they can't say yes or you can't fuck animals because they can't say yes. And like we have a set of moral codes that we have decided upon and we, regardless of how we feel or regardless of how we are born or how we're nurtured to become this person, there is a set of rules that we have to follow that must fuck with you because you're just like, what's wrong with me? I don't want to be this way. So I think that there's a point, like there's a good point there. Like it is controversial. Like I totally get that. And that's why I tend to not talk about stuff like that. But I totally agree where it's just like people who need help need, should be able to come forward without someone being like, oh, my f-ing God. And especially if they have only had the urge and haven't acted upon it. Because exactly. I mean, isn't that the best case scenario? That's what I felt for like, that's why I felt that I don't want to feel sympathy. But that's why it's weirdly humanizing with Jeffrey Dahmer because or at least his portrayal in this because there were so many moments where he's like just stopped himself and was like no and like except that we don't know why he stopped himself we, exactly but like at the same time like why else would you because like he he didn't have a problem later so like why was there hesitance in the beginning you know like well, maybe, it's really interesting maybe because of the social thing yeah but that's that still indicates that he cares what other people think, or maybe he cares that he didn't want to get found out. Even that is like caring. Do you know what I mean? And then, like, at a certain point. But it's caring point, about yourself, which is still fits into the whole sociopath thing. Sure. But then at the same time, like, I feel like there's a turning point because at a certain point, he just kills a slew of people. Like, there's a gap between the first hitchhiker when he's a teenager and then much later. And then it's just like a slew and he, like, goes ham so we don't know what happens between like then and that and like he probably tried to repress it or like do whatever like drinking his way to shit who knows my friend Dahmer, no the idea. sequel yeah <laughs> jesus yeah that was literally what i was about to say i think that 10 year gap i mean i can only look at that as he did this thing and he was like wow that was horrible and i never want to do that again and then he did everything he could possibly think of to make sure that didn't happen again and then it did and then he was like, fuck it. At that point, yeah. it's like, it's as soon as you go through the first door, it's like, fuck it. And then you just, and then, then he became a born again Christian in prison. Like, you know, like, cause so clearly he didn't feel good about it. Like, obviously in a carnal way, he probably did. But morally, I don't think he was about it at all, which is what's very problematic about the whole thing. Because it's so much easier to hate someone who's, you know, who's just not morally there and with him it's like no i know it's just it's like scary scary stuff and this again i know way too much but to what reinforces that is like the second kill like after that 10-year gap he literally he got a hotel room with a guy he got blackout drunk in the hotel room he woke up and he had beat the guy to death so this was not a conscious decision to start killing again i don't think i think it was something that happened and then he was like well we've already crossed this line so let's just keep going from there that's really interesting I there's didn't no know going that. back right at that at certain points but then it does kind of feed into the idea that it's natural like it's his nature i think even back then in high school jeffrey dahmer in a sense did have a moral code in that he adopted the moral code of his time period because as you were all saying so well before he had these impulses but he resisted them in that sense, even if you don't believe in a moral code, you're still acting upon some moral code. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say Jeffrey Dahmer is a moral person. No, no he clearly failed no, no, his no. moral code. No, no, he was amoral. But I think at some point he did have a moral code and he acted on a moral code, whether he agreed with it or not. But I think it's also important to say, like, I think why? Because I think 
what if he was acting on a moral code just so he doesn't get found out so he can keep doing bad things? You know, and then that's not very moral, you know, because there are sometimes I want to do, not in the context of this story, but sometimes I want to do fucked up shit like, oh, I really want to tell this person off, right? And the reason why I don't isn't because I'm morally superior. It's because I don't want to have done this action of having told people off because I don't want to be judged by society rather than even though I will fantasize about telling this person off. I don't know. I think it's an interesting point that like, again, during that 10 year period where he didn't kill, he did a lot of other fucked up shit. Like he masturbated in front of young boys. He would go to like the bathhouse and would like drug people with like sleeping pills. So they were like limp when they were having sex and things like that. So it's like, in a way, I think that was his moral code. He was like, what else can I do other than this? And they were still fucked up things. But I think on some level, they were probably less fucked up than murdering and maiming people. Yeah, like he in his mind, he was like, what can I get away with for myself, basically? Which is really interesting because that is fucked up. Like those are all terrible things to do as well. So wait, Lindsay, what is he considered a sociopath or something else? I don't know, honestly. Some kind of antisocial thing. I think it's an antisocial disorder. I, again, not a psychiatrist, but I don't know if they kill people. But what I'll say, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think he's a sociopath. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm assuming it's some kind of antisocial disorder of some type. And yet, compared to like other serial killers, he seems so coherent and articulate and aware in his interviews, or even like those quotes within the book and the prologue and the postscript. It's like, wow, you're very self-aware for a homicidal maniac. It's like, my goodness. No, it's true. And I should point out actually that having some sort of anti-social, being on the antisocial spectrum, which is, I believe on the spectrum of anxiety disorders uh, and OCD, doesn't necessarily make you a serial killer for those listening. That's a whole other kind of thing. But, Kay, you brought up before the kind of social order, and I was talking about it too. So let's kind of dive into the his kind of high school experience, and also generally the high school experience that was depicted in the graphic novel. Because I think it's going to be easy to get lost in talking about Dahmer himself. And, you know, let's not forget that, and I'm reminding this to myself, just like everybody, that this is a graphic novel, and that's the context that we want to stay into. So Durf described his high school is having casts and i was i was like wow that is so on point what did you all think about it it's like a hierarchy that's exactly what that's what it feels like when you're in there i don't know if it i can't say if there's validity in it because i think everyone in their separate groups think that there's a hierarchy that they just make up in their own head and they like feel this weird paranoia with each other or maybe there is a hierarchy like that exists i don't know but i think that it is valid that everyone feels that way when they're in school because, you know, there's like cliques and all that and you kind of have to like find your place and stay there. There's not really much variance. But then also the school experience is very different from how I grew up, I think. Like I think that you really couldn't get away with much at my school. So it's interesting because this seemed like very lax and, like, I went to a public school, too. Like, there were some things that, like, you, people would let go or whatever. But And we had, like, our own, like, ooh, like, there were drug problems. Like, you know, like, there, there, there would be stories like that, but not anywhere near as lax as this school. So that could contribute, too, because it's like, where's the order? No? Okay. I particularly related to, like, how Durf and his friends kind of ended up being friends with Dahmer. Because at my school, it was very much like there was the bottom rung was 
the nerdy kids who didn't play sports and didn't really do anything that was considered cool. And then like the weird kids. So there were some weird kids that we were around that we were kind of, and it, and it was a mix of being nice um, and letting them be around us, but they were also kind of like a joke to us. So I totally understood like where Durf was coming from with that. Honestly, when Durf mentioned that, it reminded me of like the stereotypical high school movie. I think every teen movie I've ever seen, like everybody is divided into casts in a sense. And I felt narratively it was very convenient structure. Again, I can't speak to the actuality of it, as Kay was saying. But again, like as a high school student, don't you always kind of put yourself as the underdog or you're always trying to get more or strive for more? So I thought that was convenient and helpful for our mind frame, narratively speaking. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely accurate and really relatable just reading about or or seeing like his depiction of high school. It made, it made me think back to high school when I went there and just I kind of like placed my friends and like all my classmates kind of like in that cast system. And it was it was really accurate. I thought so, too. I thought it was very representative, actually. And I thought even though I went to high school 20 years later after the, this took place, I mean, you, there was almost no difference I because mean, we were using pay phones and shit, too, um, back then. So and we had beepers. I don't think we were, I wasn't allowed to have a beeper, but they were like just coming out, you know, well, for kids. But yeah, it was very representative to me. It was almost a little eerie how on it was. And there, to me, there was a connection with Alison Bechdel in terms of the, the realness being so real, it was surreal. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the Bechdelian connections. This is a fun question because I'm old as fuck. And uh, I was noticing the technology use, and I was like, oh, my God, I remember all this stuff. So removing the whole serial killer Dahmer element, which is half of the title, um, which is going to be very difficult. But um, as an old person, I have to ask, was anything dated in the story with you guys? Because for me, it really, I understood everything that kind of went on. This goes back to what Kay said about like being in high school, and you really could not get away with anything inside the walls of that high school. Um I mean, let's take it to something else totally horrible that happened. I think there's a a big difference between like pre-Columbine and post-Columbine high school culture. So as long as you weren't completely disturbing the peace in high school, the teachers left you alone, I feel like, before Columbine. But after Columbine, I think all of that changed and high schools became a lot more institutional feeling. In terms of like the emotions of being a high school, it very much reminded me of those like insecurities and that anxiety that I felt in high school and as an adult. But yes, that anxiety as high schooler. That but I felt yesterday. <laughs> yeah, right. That I felt two minutes ago. If I was, if this was a cast, I would have been an untouchable. Say, oh, oh, oh babe, say yeah. no. <laughs> no, but for me, something that felt very dated was that corporal beating by the, um, that person. Like, on the other hand, it reminded me of the nuns pre-Vatican too. Like these were war stories that were discussed in my school of like faculty just being the crap out of students. But to actually see that depicted in like a public school for me is like, oh, times have changed because nowadays that's a lawsuit and a CNN story. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was in the days when you couldn't get beat up uh, by a teacher, but my parents got their ass kicked by their teachers. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned that, Rachel, because that reminded me that I guess it is kind of dated for me to think of a teacher physically restraining any student. That would never happen. It's like because they would call like, you know, the hotline for child molestation like in two seconds. Do you know what I mean? Like it was very like 
listen to what I'm saying and do it, please. There was no physical restraint shit like the um, that one teacher with Fig or Figs, whatever his name was. But that would never go down. Mm-mm. The high school and teenage experience is so universal that the time period never it was never really jarring to me. It never really took me out of the story. So other than that, just the whole the, the cast system their feelings, you know, the bullies and the nerves and everything. It was, it felt right to me. Yeah, me too. Me too. So I was actually really nervous to even include this section in. And I was really angry the first time. My first read through through this, I was really, I was like, I don't want to humanize this guy. And just because you went to school with him, I'm not sure that you should have written this. And I think we're going to talk about that too. Just to give a little preview of what we're going to talk about later. I just keep thinking of the families of the people that died. And even in art, is this good? And, you were just his friend, and I get that people have because I I remember after nine eleven people were doing paintings of people jumping off buildings and stuff, but they were in there too. Do you know what I'm saying? So what else do you do with that besides make art? Like this guy had I'm sure other things going on with him, Durf, and chose to make this. Still, I'm glad he did because look at this this very discussion is coming out of it, and I think that that's important. I think that's a really great thing that art does. So I have a whole section on Dahmer humanized and. I'm, I'm excited to get into it, but at the same time, I found, but you know, I also get mad during Medea and, and, and Doll's House. So, you know, and, and so, I, but, but I love those things. And I think it's just, I think that's what good art does. It makes you mad and it gives you a lot of feelings. And so I think that that's what happened for me. And we're going to talk about that. So there was a scene where Durf contrasts his home life with Dahmer's, and I thought it was pretty powerful. And I just wanted to ask how you, well, ask how one person to describe it. And, also talk about the emotions that it evoked for you because for me seeing his mother like that was really it was it was difficult in this scene you see Durf come home from school he has like a comic book with him and he's he comes home and there's like a note on the fridge that's like please unload the dishwasher or something like that and he's like oh man mom sucks like something like that and then you see Dahmer come home from school and his mom is having some kind of like fit she's sweating she's like physically out of control and like exhausting herself and he just kind of like goes off to his room like by himself as someone who had kind of a rough school experience like my home life was everything like getting to come home and be like oh yeah my mom's here my dad's here and like obviously not everything was perfect but it was always a place of like support and it was always a place where like I knew I was safe but like clearly for Dahmer he did not have that like it was turbulent he didn't know what to expect when he got home every day from school and I can't imagine what that was like this is probably very singular but as somebody I've had anxiety disorder my whole life and so to see that outside perspective it kind of made me very self-conscious like because I used to have physical fits. I used to have panic attacks. And it was like, how did my parents or other people in my household react to me that way? And it kind of made me want to have that discussion with my parents. But that would require a ab- substantial amount of liquor for everybody involved. And we, yeah, I, I'm on a college student like budget. I can't afford that right now. <laughs> but like, it made me very self-aware of my own home life, which is still a million times much more privileged, I feel. Than Dahmer. I know for a fact it's much more privileged than Dahmer's, but it made me also want to parallel my life to Durf's, to the stories. And it made me aware of those like three different things, if that makes sense and doesn't seem too selfish. Yeah. So throughout most of the story, we see a lot of Dahmer's home life. And I, th- I feel like that was the first time we really saw um, Durf's home life. And that juxtaposition was so powerful because we see like, oh, this is what a normal high school kid experiences when they go home. 
And then it cuts to, and I believe that was the first moment that we saw that Dahmer was actually mimicking his mother's seizures. And that was like, that was a really emotional scene. There's another scene later that comes where they parallel um, Durf's life and Dahmer's life, which is when Durf is like, he's shoveling the snow with his brother. And then he comes in and his mom makes hot cocoa and they're watching like football on TV. And then it cuts to Dahmer and he's watching the same game on TV. But in the background, it's just his parents yelling. Those were really powerful moments. I absolutely agree. I thought it was such a brilliant reveal in terms of the language of comics and in terms of how this graphic novel was constructed to discover that he was, in fact, mimicking his mother. And I think it's very telling. And I think it's heartbreaking and difficult now at this point in the story to remove yourself from the fact that this man later becomes a serial killer and has already done pretty messed up stuff. I mean, you can't make that shit up, right? So, But there was something so real about it, and that moment in this graphic novel is why I love graphic novels for memoirs and why I, I – what I'm going to say is very Trumpian, which means a blanket statement that only I think is true, that I'm pretending it should be true for everyone. But that is why graphic novels do memoir the best, in my opinion. I, well, he wouldn't say my opinion. The graphic novels are the best because they do memoir the best, period. Best memoir medium ever. No, but seriously, I do feel that way, and I do think that you kind of get that from this moment. Is there a benefit to making this? Is there a benefit from us having this discussion? Is there a benefit from us having this podcast? Is there a benefit for Durf making this? And is there a benefit for us as a society to see Dahmer humanized? This story reminded me that it was a person that committed these serial killings as opposed to like this legend or this idea or concept. Because I knew who Jeffrey Dahmer was before my friend Dahmer, but I never really imagined him as a human being or a person that went home. Why is that significant to you, though? Because a human being killed 15 boys and men. And I mean, even to do justice to the victims, I think you have to realize that this was a real thing this was a human thing. This isn't some legend or something that is fictionalized. I mean, I feel like more so for like the victims than Jeffrey Dahmer himself. It's important to realize that a person killed several other people in a very inhumane way. Do you think that there is any validity to the argument? Because I think that, although I feel very similarly, I think that there'll be people listening who no doubt will say, doesn't do a disservice to those victims to humanize him at all. And to, to give him a voice and to give, people's sorrow to his story i don't know if it's giving him a voice necessarily or at least that's not how i read it how did you read it i didn't read it as oh i'm making this thing that is giving jeffrey Dahmer a voice it's more like oh it's giving like an interesting take on a part of him that was definitely relevant and shaped him because that's like how you know, what we've discussed so far, where like when you're a teenager, the people that raise you and the people that you go to school with and the how you react and how you deal with all those things are what shape you into the person you become. And whether I think that it's beneficial for this thing to exist, while I understand why one shouldn't or would feel like one shouldn't give any sorrow or any um, grief or pity on this serial killer because like creating something like this could even come off as insensitive to the family's victims. I see that. I understand that. 
But I do think it's important that things like this exist, not just from an art standpoint, because art in its own way is very selfish and masturbatory. And even what we're doing now in a weird way can be seen as such. However, I think that that's important too, because in having these conversations, in creating things like that, hopefully, or at least this is what I hope, I guess, or this is what I project onto things, is that you have to find meaning or you have to find something within yourself that you can relate to in even some way. And I think it's too easy on human nature to just reject everything that you're uncomfortable with or reject everything that you don't understand because I'm not arguing that what he did was excusable or that he wasn't a terrible person if we're going to go for quality. But I do think that I'm not like things like this should exist so that you go internal and think about how you act around people and how you relate to yourself and how you communicate with yourself about, you know, certain things you might be ashamed of or certain things that you would never want to tell anyone or things that even like bad habits, like obviously it's not comparable, but to me it's like, you know, if you have a drinking problem or if you have an untreated anxiety thing and you don't want to face up to it and like it's just kind of makes you really think about how you deal with those things and hopefully make you more self-aware. I'm not saying that everyone's going to read this and think that, but I think that it even for the, that purpose for some people, even for the few people that what about the victims, that, yeah. like, like Rachel was saying, do you feel that way about the victims? Like the victims, if they read it? Yes. Or, or for society, for the victims. Isn't that what you meant, Rachel? Yes. I think that obviously my frame of reference is totally skewed because I didn't, I haven't had someone brutally murdered in my family. I haven't had to lose someone. Most people have Yeah, I haven't experienced that. And, you know, I can sympathize, but I can't empathize because I haven't felt that. I haven't felt anything even remotely close to that. So I will say that regardless of how insensitive it sounds for me to say it, there are things in your life that are going to follow you forever, like whether you want them to or not. And, you know, we'll talk about this later, like how you capitalize on it or anything or something like that. Like that's a whole other thing. But just to like create something, even if it pains other people or upsets other people and even like dredges up very harmful and, you know, for lack of a better word, triggering content because it's very personal I don't think that we should have to like coddle one another about stuff like that. Even the victims. Yeah, I don't think so. Because again, no frame of reference, but everyone has felt some kind of trauma or something really upsetting that's shaped them. And I don't think not addressing it or not allowing other people to address it would help anything either. I wouldn't want someone to coddle me about it. Like, again, not comparable, but let's say if someone is like, okay, you have a drinking problem because you did X, Y, and Z. I wouldn't want someone to just be like, oh, well, her grandpa died, so don't bother her. Like, that's bullshit. Like, no. I, I It's just like, I would hope, I, again, not comparable, but I'm just saying that when shitty things happen to you, I don't think creating something out of it 
however uncomfortable or upsetting it might be for you should be wrong. Or having someone else create something out of it who was not who didn't experience that either, I think. I mean, do I think it's in poor taste? Maybe. Yeah. I think that that's true. But at the same time, like that would call into question whether anything that's created ever is important or should deserve to exist. But also you see it from as Marius would ta- has taught us a utilitarian perspective and that it does more good for the for the world to have it out there. I don't know. Yeah, I guess like I think that there is potential for it to do more good out of something horrible versus just not doing anything. Yeah, I think this book in a way provides some answers for how and why these horrible things happened. Um, I, I really can't speak for, I mean, I, like, of course I can't speak for the victims and how they must feel kind of seeing this work out there. But I think Durf gives a lot of insight towards how and why this happened. And he he's really careful. And I think it is a good job in emphasizing that he's not trying to be sympathetic towards Dahmer because he states um, quite a few times that he's like, look, like, you know, this is this is my friend. This is these are my memories of my friend from high school, but I'm not excusing his actions. You know, I, I want you to know that when he committed his first murder, that's where my sympathy for him ends. Well, he acknowledges that he was a monster and he did awful things and destroyed lives. But I think in a way that um, kind of giving that insight into who he was before that kind of explains and shows that there's like another side to things in a weird way. And I think just to tack on to that before you go, Kay, is now Rachel so eloquently mentioned on episode 92 of the podcast or 93, 92, where we talked about X-Men and you talked about Magneto and post-trauma. What was the term? Well, you didn't use the word post-trauma though. You used post- Generational trauma, or, post-memory? Po- yes, those two. And you have to think about Yes, this happened in 1992, and how are the families and the children dealing with that now? And I think that's interesting. But Kay, you had some stats. I think that Kat actually just shed light on something for me, where I think that when I read it, I don't, like, again, personal experience. I'm not saying that this would be accurate for anyone else, but for me, it's not so much that I'm reading it and it's humanizing Dahmer. For me, it's more like, oh, we're all kind of capable of this and maybe not to these extremes, hopefully not to these extremes. Like Jesus, I wouldn't, that would be a horrific thing. Obviously if we all fell into this weird impulse or like, you know, fed whatever horrible impulse we might have, like, of course that would be terrible. But it, to me, when I read it, it wasn't like humanizing him. It was more like shit. I love what you just said. Sorry. I didn't Yeah. No. Yeah. What you just did was make it universal. And kind of spoke to why it's important. I don't know how self-aware like Durf was when he wrote this, but I feel like for me, a big theme of this graphic novel is like everyone is kind of a bad person and everyone is kind of cruel in their own way and their own degrees. So it's like looking at the graphic novel from the standpoint of like, that's the point. Like, I think that's something that we need to think about like constantly, like all the time, like everyone's bad, but we all have the potential to be something else at the same time. And and does do you think that fact, which I think is so eloquently said by you just now, is he taking responsibility for the dangers that this work could theoretically have by letting that be an aspect of the story that we're all this bad? I guess so. I don't know, though. I think in a way, 
because he he raises the point a lot that, oh, you know, where were the adults? Why didn't anybody stop him? I think in a way in telling the story, he wants people to be more cognizant of people around them and kind of say, you know, if if we notice anything, don't be afraid to. He uses the word narc. He says, like, you know, in the 70s, you didn't narc on your friends. But I think I think it's kind of a warning sign that he has for people is that, you know, if you if you see that you need to intervene somewhere, don't be afraid to do it because it could make all the difference in the world. Unfortunately, we live in this world of absolutes. So I have two kind of deep questions that I want everyone to answer in yes or no and kind of as short as possible because I think it's important for people who haven't listened or haven't read this who are listening, if they're going to read it, I want to give them an idea of the gut reactions that people on this panel had and I think that we're a good cross-section of people who read this or will have read this graphic novel. So let's combine this. Did you find yourself feeling bad for him? And do you think this story is offensive to his victims and it should not have been made? So those are the two questions. Let's start with Kat. Yes. And my short answer is because I see that despite the fact that he had these awful urges, these like horrible impulses, there were still a lot of really awful outside forces in his life. And it was it was sad to see that. It was sad to think that maybe if he had a better home life, if he had better friend circle, that maybe he could have gotten help. But it doesn't excuse the fact that he did horrible, awful things. So do you think that a story like this is offensive to the family of his victims to the point where it should not have been created? I'm sure that the victim, that the families of the victims are like understandably and justifiably torn apart having to see things like this. But I think coming from Durf's perspective, having had that experience with Dahmer, it's a story he needed to tell. Ultimately, no, I don't feel badly for Jeffrey Dahmer. While I agree with Kat, there were moments where I was like, oh, okay, wow, that's horrible. Nobody should ever experience that. At the same time, I can't honestly say after you've killed 15 men and boys like no there's zero empathy afterwards for what happened to you quite frankly in terms of do i think the story is offensive to family of his victims i would understand intellectually if they did find this offensive and i would see it as a valid point personally no i do not because again just having this discussion and even with the graphic novels i was saying before i was able to empathize more with the victims because jeffrey Dahmer was this human that did these horrible, atrocious things to human beings. So in a way, it helped me, in a sense, in this like grander scheme, understand that these were actual people who tragically lost their lives. So the first question is, do I feel bad for him? Um, I'm going to say yes. Uh, the short answer is, like, as someone who has anxiety, depression, etc., I know what it's like to not be in control of the way you feel. And I can't imagine what it would be like if that's how I felt. Like, I can't really say if I would have turned out any differently or if I had or if I would have reached out for help. Second question, do I think this story is offensive to the family of the victims? I think if they found this offensive, they obviously have every right to find this offensive. But I think in the context of the media circus and like the cult of personality that has become of Jeffrey Dahmer. I would highly doubt it if this was the thing they would pinpoint as offensive to them. I do feel bad for him primarily because I think Lindsay very aptly put that in a very, maybe perhaps superficial way. I do. It was relatable because of something that you can't control or something about yourself that you can't control and you wouldn't be able to even fathom not 
being able to control impulses like that. And then also, do I think that it is offensive to the families of the victims? Probably, actually. It's probably pretty offensive just because if you're, if something that traumatic happens to you, you're not going to just, unless you're very well adjusted, you're not going to get over it and you're going to be in your feelings for a long time about it, probably until you die. So it's like, yeah, I find that f***ing offensive. But do I think that that means it can't exist? No, I don't think that that's true. Like, I think that it has its own place in its world. It doesn't, I don't at least think that it gives Jeffrey Dahmer more life necessarily. It doesn't. And if it does, then that's a personal perception problem, I feel. So like you you give the meaning to things that you want. And yeah. Yeah, so I would say for me, the one drop of feelings of sympathy for him sort of have to make it a yes, right? And I And I did have that. Um, I did feel for him when I saw and realized he was imitating his mother because it, it there did seem to be an element of him caring and his emotion in there and him being normal and I mean a normal person who's experienced this and that's how he dealt with it and there was something heartbreaking about that he chose to mimic it and make fun of it there was something self-abusive about it and that I felt bad about and you know Kay, you talked about the universality of having a darkness inside of you and when I say you, I mean every person on the planet, having a darkness inside of you that is difficult con- to control. And here is a very hyperbolic real-life case. And I think that if there are people who, like me, who questioned if this should be made or not, I think that at the times when I was saying, no, it should not have, and I was really questioning it, I wonder how much of like that was in my thinking no. I don't want to keep adding on to my own thing because we are going to keep it short. But at the end of the day, the worst monsters in the world are human. So I feel bad because everyone is capable of doing good and being human and being there and kind of figuring figuring stuff out, even if they make mistakes. And then, you know, again, like you said, like it's a hyperbolic example of when you just let you yourself be a monster and superhero fans i'm like i'm bringing it up for the third time uncanny x-force volume one apocalypse solution it's the x-men version of this and it's a lot more palatable <laughs> but also really fucked up too i just want to point that out and you can hear all about it in two episodes of our podcast episode 80 something which is the whatever who cares the rick remender one i don't know we talked about it a fuck of a lot Go to the podcast page and check it out, please. Comicsverse.com slash podcasts. <laughs> All right. So, Kay, you were the last person to talk, but I might need to be the first person to talk about this because we're talking about sure. art and you're an artist. How would you describe the art in My Friend Dom? It's weird because it was kind of like acid trippy, which I think temporally works. I don't know if it was purposeful. It might not have been. But I like when you see the sketches that are like real sketches that he did in school, not really the same thing. Like it's he clearly went through transformations or made like stylistic choices. So with the art in this, I really liked because there were some some things that were like hyper detailed. But then to use your word again, like certain features of the people and the students were very hyperbolic, like almost, you know, like I guess I almost said almost it's cartoon like and 
it's interesting because even like the rolling hills, like everything is very extra, but it's still technically very detailed and you can very clearly decipher what what's what. And um, yeah, like, you know, with all their huge heads and small bot, like, I don't know, it was very distinctive and for the mood of the of the piece, especially considering Dahmer's altered like state of mind, as well as even teenagers not really having shit figured out. So like the perception of things is kind of skewed in that way. I thought it was very appropriate and I enjoyed it very much. I found it really funny that um, Robert Crumb was one of the people that left a quote for the book because when I first opened to the prologue, I was like, oh my God, this is like Robert Crumb stands cross-hatching. I mean, the use of shadows, the exaggerated bodies, especially of the women, like all the women had booties. I'm, I'm so sorry, but like just the way that the bodies were drawn and the use of shadow for dramatic moments and those exaggerated facial expressions, it was so Robert Crumb who also did autobiographical comics that were sometimes deeply uncomfortable subject matter wise. So I was curious how deliberate that was, but overall I really, that was probably like one of my favorite aspects of the book was the artistic style and how like it, like the tone and the mood of it through that artistic style and the perspective of like zooming in and how we, the reader were positioned. I found phenomenal. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. And I actually wrote it down in my notes. I was like, this is very Robert Crumb. That was the very first thing I thought, like when I turned to the first page. But I liked how cartoonish it was. And I like how you could distinguish all the characters from each other. And I liked how, you know, of course, the main character of the story was very like stylized and separate from everybody else. Um, And I think one of the things that really stands out is, you know, the characters a lot. They did that. Um that spastic thing where they were making fun of, where they were mimicking Dahmer's mom. And just so much detail went into that. So Lindsay, you're our art history expert, which I love. You know, I'm a huge fan of art history. For you, was this reminiscent of any particular period? Because there were two that came up for me. So I was curious if if the same ones came up for you. So this is like weirdly specific, but just the way people were rendered in this was very like German Gothic. Yes, expressionist. That's exactly what I thought. Okay. Yes. That was that was my second one actually. Yeah, I'm going to say that's like the strongest one for me is definitely like German Gothic manuscripts, like over exaggeration, like we're we're not trying to draw people as people, we're trying to draw people as like a concept of people, if that makes sense. For me, I was like Romanesque man. Those heads were Romanesque heads, I thought. Um but I thought it was so great that he had such a confluence of different styles pouring into each other and they really worked all together as an artist i thought this was really pretty powerful but for me i really thought that the style in general lent itself more to scott mcleod's comics theory of identification through simplification more so than a lot of other graphic novels and obviously superhero comics that i read and we read One of the reviews of uh, my friend Dahmer was compared it to Alison Bechdel's Fun Home. When I read that at the beginning, I was like, that is some comparison. I was like, you better. I was like, now that you put that in my head, I I was like, whoa, whoa. I mean, it's like, it might as well have said, this will remind you of Reese's Pieces and divination with Zeus when he turns into a swan and penetrates you. Because that is what 
that is easier for me to imagine than this being like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, which goes to how much I loved Fun Home. But guess what? It reminded me of Fun Home. <laughs> I thought it did a good job. Um, although, I, well, I can't say that it reminded me of Fun Home, but I did think it had the same. It figured out Alison Bechdel's formula and then did did that. It felt like a backwards investigation, both Fun Home and my friend Dahmer. It's like this happened, and then you're backtracking to figure out how did we get there. It. I did like that she asked more questions versus he drew more conclusions, and uh, I typical male behavior. <laughs> oh, but I wonder fired. if he did that artistically. I mean, he, I mean, he's smart enough to know why he included or didn't, and that would be an interesting conversation for us to have with him one day. I think both graphic novels are two people trying to work through something that happened to someone they knew um, and how to get in their headspace. And I, I mean, Fun Home is probably more effective at doing that just because it was someone who she was like much more close to. Obviously, she was writing about her father as opposed to someone you knew in high school. And I think that's why in a lot of ways, Durf drew more conclusions because it was more of a like a clinical study of that period than it was personal experiences in a lot of ways and also I, I said this to Kay last night that it was like it's as if you wrote fun home and allison's character was a minor character and the father's character was the protagonist um i got that a lot but then also you just brought up a great point which is that was her father this is a guy he saw hung out with at his home 12 times and saw every day in school for four years and I, you know, I, I remember I, we all saw a lot of people in high school every day. I mean, how well did we all really know them? Not very well. Yeah, except, well, you, Rachel, you went to an all-girls school, so maybe for you guys it was different because we were dorming? Oh, that's a different podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> were, you, were you dorming? No, no. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, I, I wasn't sure if you, like, get to know each other more in that way. I'm sorry. I thought you were making a sex joke. I'm so sorry. Oh, I, no, I wasn't. No, I, I, that I would never make a sex <laughs> like, joke like, that involves oh. females. Only because I would never think of, it would never, just never occur to me. So, yeah, we kind of asked this before, but what, what, what do we say to the critics of Durf? And I'm sorry, Durf, that I keep saying your name like that. I just discovered that your name is Durf, and I love it. But there's going to be critics who are listening to this. There's critics who've read this, and they're saying this guy is profiting off of the fact that he was in the right place at the right time to make money off it and, and to make a graphic novel. And they're going to say he's a creator who's benefiting from his connection to Dahmer. And that he's exploiting the situation. Is that true? Is that not true? And how do we fight against or for that? Or how do you how do you feel about that? I, I said this a little bit earlier too, but um, I think it's it's one of those stories he had to tell. Like, how can you have been friends with one of the most notorious serial, serial killers and not tell that story? And his connection with him, it wasn't it wasn't just a superficial connection. Like, if if it was another like any other person in that school, like oh yeah, I went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer. Let me you know write a graphic novel and make millions. It wasn't like that. He like he spent time with this guy. Like he had experience with this guy. He had like actual memories with this guy. So he he played a prominent role in Jeffrey Dahmer's life. And I think I think he had to tell this story. And I mean, this goes into a little bit of what Kay was saying before. But I think if you are a creative type. This is how you work through things. And I don't know if I can fault someone for taking an experience and creating something, regardless of what that experience was or like how much it really had to do with them. Like, even if it was just like, I saw this on TV and it touched me and now I made this, like, I don't know if I can look at that and be like, well, you shouldn't have made that. Like, so on a level, like it's definitely exploit, like exploitative. I, I can't say that word, but at the same time, like if you felt like you had to make this, you do you like absolutely 
I think the only time that I felt something was kind of exploitive is the title, My Friend Dahmer, as we pointed to several times, as you pointed to just recently, like how well did Durf honestly know Jeffrey Dahmer to say friend? I felt like it's a very good title and I think it's convenient title. I'm not sure how true that is because you're not like part of it doesn't sit well with me. It's a tad clickbaity personally, but it's a catchy title. So, hey, I get it. It is exploitation to the, in the sense that you're profiting from telling a story about a notorious serial killer in the profession that you're in. But it's like, I don't know, how, like, on the scale of what exploitation is, I don't think that that's that severe. It's kind of like, yeah, you obviously need to feed yourself and, you know, also like what Kat was saying, like he had to tell this story and what Lindsay was saying, too, that this is how people sometimes people deal with how like, you know, that you were that close and like with that person who ended up killing all these people. I, it's not an easy answer, I'll, I'll say, because there's like the material gain and then also just like what did he, what did he really emotionally gain from gain or lose from experiencing the shock that someone he knew in high school killed all these people and he like hang out, hung out with them. What does that say about him? Or how does that make him, you know? So like, it's, it's weird because it goes between how you personally feel versus how everyone in the world feels. But yeah, I'm not really sure. Okay. So we have to close up. So in one sentence, what was the moment that really stuck with you? The yearbook drawings and the photograph from the Honor Society where Jeffrey Dahmer's face was blocked out. The climax slash anti-climax of the mall trip and how that fits into the overall structure of the book and the narrative. There's like a double ending at the end, but that really messed me up was when they all met up years later. And they're like, yeah, that kid's definitely a serial killer now. Ha ha ha. And then he's like, we all laughed about it. And then the second ending was when he first found out about how Dahmer was the person that they caught who had killed all those people. And he Dahmer was his second guess. And then the last panel is just like, oh, Dahmer, like, what have you done? And it's just kind of like, that f***s with you. Like, I don't care what anyone says. Just hearing you talk about it just gave me chills. Yeah, it's just like, what have you done? I've gotten so many chills during this podcast because we, memoir just does it to me. It gives me the chills. Kat, how about you? When he's waiting in the woods with the baseball bat for the jogger and the jogger doesn't run by that day. Ooh. Yeah, that shit. And then he doesn't try again either. Mm-hmm. The moment, which I already talked about, that most got me was that huge panel with the, with the mom and then the text in the reveal where Durf explained that he was mimicking the mother because that was just, there was something just so heartbreaking about it for me. And, and I was... Kind of blown away. And then like what you were saying about graphic novels too, like you can't make a visual parallel like that in the same way in film or anything else. Absolutely So it is like, so it is really artful and amazing, but also that's why it made you feel so strongly, I think. So yeah, so in closing, I want people who are listening to this who haven't read My Friend Dahmer yet to realize this is another classic graphic novel in a long line of what will be a wonderful list of classic graphic novels. And to Durf himself, I know we've been really hard on him, and I know that there's a chance he will listen to this, so uh, a high chance. So I wanted to say that we're really happy that you made this, and 
and put yourself out there. And because you put yourself out there, so many conversations like this have happened. And this is just one of those conversations. And I think that everyone in this room can say we grew a little bit from this conversation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. So that's really cool. So time to wrap it up and go to comicsfirst.com for more podcasts like this. We actually have a really long podcast on Fun Home and talk about it a couple times, actually. Um, I think Fun Home probably comes up in every com- every podcast because of me. It's a great reference. I mean, it is. It is. It's, one of, it's just one of my favorites. So, like I said, commentaries.com for more podcasts like this, videos, interviews, all kinds of stuff, articles. So, thank you everyone so much for listening. Thank you. Have thank a good you. one. Thank you. Bye. Don't kill anyone. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Seek help. Yes. If you or anyone you know has dark urges please such as... Please seek help. Yes, and please... The humiliation of them getting angry at you for thinking that they had a problem is much less of a problem than potentially killing many people. Yeah, and all fish lives matters. It did, that fish did not have to go. I'm just saying that was the first victim. Sunfish. That's sunfish. Yeah, hashtag that's not how sushi goes. Okay, goodbye everybody. <laughs> <laughs>